0: Section 2 of Zigzags of Treachery and Other Stories by Dashiell Hammett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Zigzags of Treachery, Part 2, Chapter 8 Neither Bob nor I went home that night, but slept in the Laguna Street apartment. Bob went down to the corner grocers to get what we needed for breakfast in the morning, and he brought a morning paper back with him. I cooked breakfast while he divided his attention between Ledwich's front door and the newspaper. Hey, he called suddenly. Look here. I ran out of the kitchen with a handful of bacon. What is it? Listen Park murder mystery, he read. Early this morning, the body of an unidentified man was found near a driveway in Golden Gate Park. His neck had been broken, according to the police, who said that the absence of any considerable bruises on the body as well as the orderly condition of the clothes and the ground nearby, show that he did not come to his death through falling or being struck by an automobile. It is believed that he was killed and then carried to the park in an automobile to be left there. "'Boyd,' I said. "'I bet you,' Bob agreed. And at the morgue, a very little while later, we learned that we were correct. The dead man was John Boyd. He was dead when Ledwich brought him out of the house, Bob said. I nodded. He was. He was a little man, and it wouldn't have been much of a stunt for a big bruiser like Ledwich to have dragged him along with one arm the short distance from the door to the curb, pretending to be holding him up, like you do with a drunk. Let's go over to the Hall of Justice and see what the police have got on it, if anything. At the detective bureau we hunted up O'Gar, the detective sergeant in charge of the homicide detail, and a good man to work with. "The dead man found in the park," I asked. "Know anything about him?" O'Gar pushed back his village constable's hat-a big black hat with floppy brim that belonged in vaudeville-scratched his bullet head, and scowled at me as if he thought I had a joke up my sleeve. "Not a damned thing-except that he's dead." he said at last. How'd you like to know who he was last seen with? It wouldn't hinder me in any way in finding out who bumped him off, and that's a fact. How'd you like the sound of this, I asked. His name was John Boyd, and he was living at a hotel down in the next block. The last person he was seen with was a guy who was tied up with Dr. Estep's first wife. You know, the Estep whose second wife is the woman you people are trying to prove a murder on? Does that sound interesting? It does, he said. Where do we go first? This Ledwich, he's the fellow who was last seen with Boyd, is going to be a hard bird to shake down. We'd better try to crack the woman first, the first Mrs. Estep. There's a chance that Boyd was a pal of hers, and in that case, when she finds out that Ledwich rubbed him out, she may open up and spill the works to us. "'On the other hand, if she and Ledwich are stacked up against Boyd together, "'then we might as well get her safely placed before we tie into him. "'I don't want to pull him in before night, anyway. "'I got a date with him, and I want to try to rope him first. "'Bob Teal made for the door. "'I'm going up and keep my eye on him until you're ready for him,' "'he called over his shoulder. "'Good,' I said. "'Don't let him out of town on us. "'If he tries to blow, have him chucked in the can.' In the lobby of the Montgomery Hotel, O'Gar and I talked to Dick Foley first. He told us that the woman was still in her room, had had her breakfast set up. She had received neither letters, telegrams, nor phone calls since we began to watch her. I got a hold of Stacy again. We're going up to talk to this STEP woman, and maybe we'll take her away with us. Will you send up a maid to find out whether she's up and dressed yet? We don't want to announce ourselves ahead of time and we don't want to burst in on her while she's still in bed or only partly dressed. He kept us waiting about fifteen minutes and then told us that Mrs. Estep was up and dressed. We went up to her room, taking the maid with us. The maid rapped on the door. What is it? An irritable voice demanded. The maid, I want to... The key turned on the inside and an angry Mrs. Estep jerked the door open. O'Gar and I advanced, O'Gar flashing his buzzer. "'From headquarters,' he said. "'We want to talk to you.' O'Gar's foot was where she couldn't slam the door on us, and we were both walking ahead, so there was nothing for her to do but retreat into the room, admitting us, which she did with no pretense of graciousness. We closed the door, and then I threw our big load at her. "'Mrs. Estep, why did Jake Ledwich kill John Boyd?' The expressions ran over her face like this. Alarm at Ludwig's name. Fear at the word kill. But the name John Boyd brought only bewilderment. Why did what? She stammered meaninglessly to gain time. Exactly, I said. Why did Jake kill him last night in his flat and then take him in the park and leave him? Another set of expressions. Increased bewilderment until I had almost finished the sentence and then the sudden understanding of something, followed by the inevitable groping for poise. These things weren't as plain as billboards, you understand, but they were there to be read by anyone who has ever played poker, either with cards or people. What I got out of them was that Boyd hadn't been working with or for her, and that though she knew Ledwich had killed somebody at some time, it wasn't Boyd, and it wasn't last night. Who then? And when? Dr. Estep? Hardly. There wasn't a chance in the world that if he had been murdered, anyone except his wife had done it, his second wife. No possible reading of the evidence could bring any other answer. Who then had Ledwich killed before Boyd? Was he a wholesale murderer? These things were flitting through my head in flashes and odd scraps, while Mrs. Estep was saying, This is absurd, the idea of your coming up here and She talked for five minutes straight, the words fairly sizzling from between her hard lips, but the words themselves didn't mean anything. She was talking for time, talking while she tried to hit upon the safest attitude to assume. And before we could head her off, she had hit upon it. Silence. We got not another word out of her, and that is the only way in the world to beat the grilling game. The average suspect tries to talk himself out of being arrested. And it doesn't matter how shrewd a man is or how good a liar, if he'll talk to you and you play your cards right, you can hook him, can make him help you convict him. But if he won't talk, you can't do a thing with him. And that's how it was with this woman. She refused to pay any attention to our questions. She wouldn't speak, nod, grunt, or wave an arm in reply. She gave us a fine assortment of facial expressions, true enough, but we wanted verbal information and we got none. We weren't easily licked, however. Three beautiful hours of it we gave her, without rest. We stormed, cajoled, threatened, and at times I think we danced, but it was no go. So in the end, we took her away with us. We didn't have anything on her, but we couldn't afford to have her running around loose until we nailed Ledwich. At the Hall of Justice, we didn't book her, but simply held her as a material witness putting her in an office with a matron and one of O'Gar's men, who were to see what they could do with her while we went after Ludwig, We had her frisked as soon as she reached the hall, of course, and as we expected, she hadn't a thing of importance on her. O'Gar and I went back to the Montgomery and gave her room a thorough overhauling, and found nothing. Are you sure you know what you're talking about? the detective sergeant asked as we left the hotel. It's going to be a pretty joke on somebody, if you're mistaken. I let that go by without an answer. I'll meet you at 6.30, I said, and we'll go up against Ludwich. He grunted an approval, and I set out for Vance Richmond's office. Chapter 9 The attorney sprang up from his desk as soon as his stenographer admitted me. His face was leaner and grayer than ever. Its lines had deepened, and there was a hollowness around his eyes. "'You've got to do something,' he cried huskily. "'I have just come from the hospital. "'Mrs. Estep is on the point of death. "'A day more of this, two days at the most, and she will—' I interrupted him and swiftly gave him an account of the day's happenings and what I expected or hoped to make out of them, but he received the news without brightening and shook his head hopelessly don't you see, he exclaimed when I had finished, that that won't do. I know you can find proof of her innocence in time. I'm not complaining. You've done all that could be expected, and more. But all that's no good. I've got to have, well, a miracle, perhaps. Suppose that you do finally get the truth out of Ledwich and the first Mrs. Estep, or it comes out during their trials for Boyd's murder, or that if you even get to the bottom of the matter in three or four days, that will be too late. If I can go to Mrs. Estep and tell her that she's free now, she may pull herself together and come through. But another day of imprisonment, two days, or perhaps even two hours, and she won't need anyone to clear her, death will have done it. "'I tell you, she's—' "'I left Vince Richmond abruptly again. "'The lawyer was bound upon getting me worked up, "'and I like my jobs to be simply jobs. "'Emotions are nuisances during business hours.'" Chapter 10 At a quarter to seven that evening, while O'Gar remained down the street, I rang Jacob Ledwich's bell. As I had stayed with Bob Teal in our apartment the previous night, I was still wearing the clothes in which I had made Ledwidge's acquaintance as shine Wisher. Ledwidge opened the door. "'Hello, Wisher,' he said without enthusiasm, and led me upstairs. His flat consisted of four rooms, I found, running the full length and half the breadth of the building, with both front and rear exits. It was furnished with the ordinary none-too-spotless appointments of the typically moderately-priced furnished flat, "'alike the world over. "'In his front room, we sat down and talked and smoked "'and sized one another up. "'He seemed a little nervous. "'I thought he would have been just as well satisfied "'if I had forgotten to show up. "'About this job you mentioned?' I asked presently. "'Sorry,' he said, moistening his little lumpy mouth. "'But it's all off.' "'Then he added, obviously as an afterthought. "'For the present, at least.' I guess from that my job was to have taken care of Boyd, but Boyd had been taken care of for good. He brought out some whiskey after a while, and we talked it over for some time, to no purpose whatever. He was trying not to appear too anxious to get rid of me, and I was cautiously feeling him out. Piecing together things he let fall here and there, I came to the conclusion that he was a former con man who had fallen into an easier game of late years, This was in line, too, with what Porky Grout had told Bob Teal. I talked about myself with the evasiveness that would have been natural to a crook in my situation and made one or two carefully planned slips that would lead him to believe that I had been tied up with the Jimmy the Riveter hold-up mob, most of whom were doing long hitches at Walla Walla then. He offered to lend me enough money to tide me over until I could get on my feet again. I told him I didn't need chicken feed so much as a chance to pick up some real jack. The evening was going along, and we were getting nowhere. "'Jake,' I said casually—outwardly casual, that is— "'you took a big chance putting that guy out of the way like you did last night.' I meant to stir things up, and I succeeded. His face went crazy. A gun came out of his coat. Firing from my pocket, I shot it out of his hand. "'Now behave!' I ordered. He sat, rubbing his benumbed hand and staring with wide eyes at the smoldering hole in my coat. "'Looks like a great stunt, this shooting a gun out of a man's hand, but it's a thing that happens now and then. A man who is a fair shot, and that's exactly what I am, no more, no less, naturally and automatically shoots pretty close to the spot upon which his eyes are focused.' When a man goes for his gun in front of you, you shoot at him, not at any particular part of him. There isn't time for that. You shoot at him. However, you're more than likely to be looking at his gun, and in that case it isn't altogether surprising if your bullet should hit his gun, as mine had done. But it looks impressive. I beat out the fire around the bullet hole in my coat, crossed the room to where his revolver had been knocked, and picked it up. I started to eject the bullets from it, but instead I snapped it shut again and stuck it in my pocket. Then I retreated to my chair opposite him. A man oughtn't to act like that, I kidded him. He's likely to hurt somebody. His little mouth curled up at me. An elbow, huh? Putting all the contempt he could in his voice. And somehow any synonym for detective seems to hold a lot of contempt. I might have tried to talk myself back into the wisher role. Could have been done, but I doubted that it would be worth it, so I nodded my confession. His brain was working now, and the passion left his face while he sat rubbing his right hand, and his little mouth and eyes began to screw themselves up calculatingly. I kept quiet, waiting to see what the outcome of his thinking would be. I knew he was trying to figure out just what my place in this game was, "'since to his knowledge I had come into it "'no later than the previous evening, "'then the Boyd murder hadn't brought me in. "'That would leave the Estep affair, "'unless he was tied up in a lot of other crooked stuff "'that I didn't know anything about.' "'You're not a city dick, are you?' he asked finally. "'And his voice was on the verge of friendliness now, "'the voice of one who wants to persuade you of something "'or sell you something. "'The truth, I thought, wouldn't hurt. "'No?' I said. "'I'm with the Continental.' He hitched his chair a little closer to the muzzle of my automatic. What are you after, then? Where do you come in on it? I tried the truth again. The second Mrs. Estep. She didn't kill her husband. You trying to dig up enough dope to spring her? Yes. I waved him back as he tried to hitch his chair still nearer. How do you expect to do it? He asked, his voice going lower and more confidential with each word. I took still another flyer at the truth. He wrote a letter before he died. Well? But I called a halt for the time. Just that, I said. He leaned back in his chair, and his eyes and mouth grew small in thought again. What's your interest in a man who died last night? He asked slowly. It's something on you. I said truthfully again. It doesn't do the second Mrs. Estep any direct good, maybe, but you and the first wife are stacked up together against her. Anything, therefore, that hurts you two will help her, somehow. I admit I'm wandering around in the dark, but I'm going ahead whenever I see a point of light, and I'll come through to daylight in the end. Nailing you for Boyd's murder is one point of light. He leaned forward suddenly, his eyes and mouth popping open as far as they would go. You'll come out all right, he said very softly, if you use a little judgment. What's that supposed to mean? Do you think, he asked still very softly, that you can nail me for Boyd's murder, that you can convict me of murder? I do, but I wasn't any too sure. In the first place, "'Though we were morally certain of it, "'neither Bob Teal nor I could swear "'that the man who had gotten the machine with Bledwich "'was John Boyd. "'We knew it was, of course, "'but the point is that it had been too dark "'for us to see his face, "'and again in the dark we had thought him alive. "'It wasn't until later that we knew he had been dead "'when he came down the steps. "'Little things, those.' but a private detective on the witness stand, unless he is absolutely sure of every detail, has an unpleasant and ineffectual time of it. I do, I repeated, thinking these things over, and I'm satisfied to go to the bat with what I've got on you and what I can collect between now and the time you and your accomplice go to trial. Accomplice? he said, not very surprised. That would be Edna. I suppose you've already grabbed her. Yes. He laughed. (laughs) You'll have one sweet time getting anything out of her. In the first place, she doesn't know much, and in the second, well, I suppose you've tried and found what a helpful sort she is, so don't try the old gag of pretending that she has talked. I'm not pretending anything. Silence between us for a few seconds, and then, I'm going to make you a proposition, he said. You can take it or leave it. The note Dr. Estep wrote before he died was to me, and it is positive proof that he committed suicide. Give me a chance to get away, just a chance, a half hour's start, and I'll give you my word of honor to send you the letter. I know I can trust you, I said sarcastically. I'll trust you, then, he shot back at me. I'll turn the note over to you if you'll give me your word that I'm to have half an hour's start. For what? I demanded. Why shouldn't I take both you and the note? (laughs) If you can get them. But do I look like the kind of sap who would leave the note where it could be found? You think it's here in the room, maybe? I didn't, but neither did I think because he had hidden it, it couldn't be found. I can't think of any reason why I should bargain with you, I told him. I've got you cold, and that's enough. If I can show you that your only chance of freeing the second Mrs. Estep is through my voluntary assistance, will you bargain with me? Maybe. I'll listen to your persuasion anyway. All right, he said. I'm going to come clean with you. But most of the things I'm going to tell you can't be proven in court without my help. And if you turn my offer down... I'll have plenty of evidence to convince the jury that these things are all false, that I never said them, and that you are trying to frame me. That part was plausible enough. I've testified before juries all the way from the city of Washington to the state of Washington, And I've never seen one that wasn't anxious to believe that a private detective is a double-crossing specialist who goes around with a cold deck in one pocket, a complete forger's outfit in another, and who counts that day lost in which he railroads no innocent to the Hooskow. Chapter 11 There was once a young doctor in a town a long way from here, Ludwig began. He got mixed up in a scandal, a pretty rotten one, and escaped the pen only by the skin of his teeth. The state medical board revoked his license. In a large city not far away, this young doc, one night when he was drunk, as he usually was in those days, told his troubles to a man he had met in a dive. The friend was a resourceful sort, and he offered, for a price— to fix the doc up with a fake diploma so he could set up in practice in some other state. The young doctor took him up, and the friend got the diploma for him. The doc was the man you know as Dr. Estep, and I was the friend. The real Dr. Estep was found dead in the park this morning. That was news, if true. You see, the big man went on, When I offered to get the phony diploma for the young doc, whose real name doesn't matter, I had in mind a forged one. Nowadays they're easy to get. There's a regular business in them. But 25 years ago, while you could manage it, they were hard to get. While I was trying to get one, I ran across a woman I used to work with, Edna Fife. That's the woman you know as the first Mrs. Estep. Edna had married a doctor the real Humbert step He was a hell of a doctor, though, and after starving with him in Philadelphia for a couple of years, she made him close up his office, and she went back to the bunco game, taking him with her. She was good at it, I'm telling you, a real cleaner, and keeping him under her thumb all the time, she made him a pretty good worker himself. It was shortly after that that I met her, and when she told me all this... I offered to buy her husband's medical diploma and other credentials. I don't know whether he wanted to sell them or not, but he did what she told him, and I got the papers. I turned them over to the young doc, who came to San Francisco and opened an office under the name of Humbert Estep. The real Esteps promised not to use that name anymore. Not much of an inconvenience for them, as they changed names every time they had changed addresses. I kept in touch with a young doctor, of course, getting my regular rake-off from him. I had him by the neck, and I wasn't foolish enough to pass up any easy money. After a year or so, I learned that he had pulled himself together and was making good, so I jumped on a train and came to San Francisco. He was doing fine, so I camped here, or I could keep my eye on him and watch out for my own interests. He got married about then, And between his practice and his investments, he began to accumulate a roll. But he tightened up on me. Damn him, he wouldn't be bled. I got a regular percentage of what he made, and that was all. For nearly twenty-five years I got it, but not a nickel over the percentage. He knew I wouldn't kill the goose that laid the golden eggs. So no matter how much I threatened to expose him, he sat tight. And I couldn't budge him. I got my regular cut. "'not a nickel more. "'That went along, as I say, for years. "'I was getting a living out of him, "'but I wasn't getting any big money. "'A few months ago I learned "'that he'd cleaned up heavily in a lumber deal, "'so I made up my mind to take him for what he had. "'During all these years I'd got to know the doc pretty well.' You do when you're bleeding, a man. You get a pretty fair idea of what goes on in his head and what he's most likely to do if certain things should happen. So I knew the doc pretty well. I knew, for instance, that he had never told his wife the truth about his past, that he had stalled her with some lie about being born in West Virginia. That was fine for me. Then I knew he kept a gun in his desk, and I knew why. It was kept there for the purpose of killing himself if the truth ever came out about his diploma. He figured that if at the first hint of exposure he wiped himself out, the authorities, out of respect for the good reputation he had built up, would hush things up. And his wife, even if she herself learned the truth, would be spared the shame of a public scandal. I can't see myself dying just to spare some woman's feelings— but the doc was a funny guy in some ways, and he was naughty about his wife. That's the way I had him figured out. That's the way things turned out. My plan might sound complicated, but it was simple enough. I got hold of the real steps. It took a lot of hunting, but I found them at last. I brought the woman to San Francisco and told the man to stay away. Everything would have gone fine if he had done what I told him but he was afraid that Edna and I were going to double-cross him, so he came here to keep an eye on us. But I didn't know that until you put the finger on him for me. I brought Edna here, and without telling her any more than she had to know, drilled her until she was letter-perfect in her part. A couple of days before she came, I had gone to see the doc and had demanded a hundred thousand cool smacks. He laughed at me, and I had left, pretending to be as hot as hell. As soon as Edna arrived, I sent her to call on him. She asked him to perform an illegal operation on her daughter. He, of course, refused. Then she pleaded with him, loud enough for the nurse or whoever was in the reception room to hear. And when she raised her voice, she was careful to stick to words that could be interpreted in the way we wanted them to. She ran off her end to perfection, leaving in tears. Then I sprang my other trick. I had a fellow, a fellow who's a whiz at that sort of stuff, make me a plate. An imitation of newspaper printing. It was all worded like the real article and said that the state authorities were investigating information that a prominent surgeon in San Francisco was practicing under a license secured by false credentials. This plate measured four and an eighth by six and three quarters inches. If you look at the first inside page of the Evening Times any day in the week, you'll see a photograph just that size. On the day after Edna's call, I bought a copy of the first edition of the Times on the street at ten in the morning. I had this scratcher friend of mine remove the photograph with acid and print this fake article in its place. That evening I substituted a home edition outer sheet for the one that had come with the paper we had cooked up and made a switch as soon as the doc's newsboy made his delivery. There was nothing to that part of it. The kid just tossed the paper into the vestibule. It's simply a case of duck into the doorway, trade papers, and go on, leaving the loaded one for the doc to read. I was trying not to look too interested, but my ears were cocked for every word. At the start, I had been prepared for a string of lies, but I knew now he was telling me the truth. Every syllable was a boast. He was half drunk with appreciation of his own cleverness, the cleverness with which he had planned and carried out his program of treachery and murder. I knew he was telling the truth, and I suspected that he was telling more of it than he had intended. He was fairly bloated with vanity, the vanity that fills the crook almost invariably after a little success and makes him ripe for the pen. His eyes glistened, and his little mouth smiled triumphantly around the words that continued to roll out of it. The doc read the paper, all right, and shot himself, but first he wrote and mailed a note to me. I didn't figure on his wife's being accused of killing him. That was plain luck. I figured that the fake piece of the paper would be overlooked in the excitement. Edna would then go forward, claiming to be his first wife and his shooting himself after her first call with what the nurse had overheard would make his death seem a confession that Edna was his wife. I was sure that she would stand up under any sort of investigation. Nobody knew anything about the doc's real past, except what he had told them, which would be found false. Edna had really married a Dr. Humbert Estep in Philadelphia in ninety six and the 27 years that had passed since then would do a lot to hide the fact that Dr. Humbert Estep wasn't this Dr. Humbert Estep. All I wanted to do was convince the doc's real wife and her lawyers that she wasn't really his wife at all, and we did that. Everybody took it for granted that Edna was the legal wife. The next play would have been for Edna and the real wife to have reached some sort of an agreement about the estate whereby Edna would have gotten the bulk, or at least half of it, and nothing would have been made public. The worst came to worst, we were prepared to go to court. We were sitting pretty. But I'd have been satisfied with half the estate. It would have come to a few hundred thousand at the least, and that would have been plenty for me, even deducting the twenty thousand I had promised Edna. But when the police grabbed the duck's wife and charged her with his murder— I saw my way into the whole roll. All I had to do was sit tight, wait until I convicted her. Then the court would turn the entire pile over to Edna. I had the only evidence that would free the doc's wife, the note that he had written me. But I couldn't, even if I would wanted to, turn turned it in without exposing my hand. When he read that fake piece in the paper, he tore it out, wrote his message to me across the face of it, and sent it to me so the note is a dead giveaway. However, I didn't have any intention of publishing it anyhow. Up to this point, everything had gone like a dream. All I had to do was wait until it was time to cash in on my brains, and that's the time that the real Humbert Estep picked out to mess up the works. He shaved his mustache off, put on some old clothes, and came snooping around to see that Edna and I didn't run out on him. "'as if he could have stopped us. "'After you put the finger on him for me, I brought him up here. "'I intended solving him along until I could find a place to keep him "'until all the cards had been played. "'That's what I was going to hire you for, to take care of him. "'But we got to talking and wrangling, and I had to knock him down. "'He didn't get up. "'And then I found he was dead. "'His neck was broken.' There was nothing to do but take him out to the park and leave him. I didn't tell Edna. She didn't have a lot of use for him, as far as I could see, but you can't tell how women will take things. Anyhow, she'll stick now that it's done. She's on the up and up all the time, and if she should talk, she can't do a lot of damage. She only knows her own part of the lay. All this long-winded story is so you'll know just exactly what you're up against. Maybe you think you can dig up the proof of these things I've told you. You can this far. You can prove that Edna wasn't the doc's wife. You can prove that I've been blackmailing him. But you can't prove that the doc's wife didn't believe that Edna was his real wife. It's her word against Edna's and mine. We'll swear we had convinced her of it, which will give her a motive. You can't prove that the phony news article I told you about ever existed. It'll sound like a hophead's dream to a jury. You can't tie last night's murder on me. I've got an alibi that will knock your hat off. I can prove that I left here with a friend of mine who was drunk and that I took him to his hotel and put him to bed with the help of a night clerk and a bellboy. And what do you got against that? The word of two private detectives. Who will believe you? You can convict me of conspiracy to defraud, or something, maybe. But regardless of that, you can't free Mrs. Estep without my help. Turn me loose, and I'll give you the letter the doc wrote me. It's the goods, right enough, in his own handwriting, written across the face of the fake newspaper story, which ought to fit the torn place in the paper that the police are supposed to be holding. And he wrote that he was going to kill himself. "'in words almost that plain. "'That would turn the trick. "'There was no doubt of it. "'And I believed Levwich's story. "'The more I thought it over, the better I liked it. "'It fitted into the facts everywhere. "'But I wasn't enthusiastic about giving this big crook his liberty. "'Don't make me laugh,' I said. "'I'm going to put you away and free Mrs. Estep both.' "'Go ahead and try it. "'You're up against it without the letter.' And you don't think a man with brains enough to plan a job like this one would be foolish enough to leave the note where it could be found, do you? I wasn't especially impressed with the difficulty of convicting this Ledwich and freeing the dead man's widow. His scheme, that cold-blooded zigzag of treachery for everybody he had dealt with, including his latest accomplice, Edna Estep, wasn't as airtight as he thought it. A week in which to run out a few lines in the east and but a week was just what I didn't have. Vance Richmond's words were running through my head. But another day of imprisonment, two days, or perhaps even two hours, and she won't need anyone to clear her. Death will have done it. If I was going to do Mrs. Estep any good, I had to move quick, law or no law. Her life was in my fat hands. This man before me, his eyes bright and hopeful now, and his mouth, anxiously pursed, was thief, blackmailer, double-crosser, and at least twice a murderer. I hated to let him walk out. But there was the woman, dying in a hospital. Chapter 12 Keeping my eye on Ledwich, I went to the telephone and got Vance Richmond on the wire at his residence. "'How is Mrs. Estep?' I asked. Weaker. "'I talked with the doctor half an hour ago, and he says... "'I cut in on him. I didn't want to listen to the details. "'Get over to the hospital and be where I can reach you by phone. "'I may have news for you before the night is over.' "'What? Is there a chance? Are you...?' "'I didn't promise him anything. "'I hung up the receiver and spoke to Ludwich. "'I'll do this much for you. slip me the note and I'll give you your gun and put you out the back door.' There's a bull on the corner out front, and I can't take you past him. He was on his feet, beaming. Your word on it, he demanded. Yes, get going. He went past me to the phone, gave a number, which I made a note of, and then spoke hurriedly into the instrument. This is Schuler. Put a boy in a taxi with the envelope I gave you to hold for me, and send him out here right away. He gave his address, said yes twice, and hung up. There was nothing surprising about his unquestioning acceptance of my word. He couldn't afford to doubt that I'd play fair with him. And also, all successful bunco men come in time to believe that the world, except for themselves, is populated by a race of human sheep who may be trusted to conduct themselves with true sheep-like docility. Ten minutes later, the doorbell rang. We answered it together, and Ledwich took a large envelope from a messenger boy while I memorized the number on the boy's cap. Then we went back to the front room. Ledwich slit the envelope and passed its contents to me, a piece of rough-torn newspaper. Across the face of the fake article he had told me about was written a message in a jerky hand. I wouldn't have suspected you, Ledwich, of such profound stupidity. My last thought will be, this bullet that ends my life also ends your years of leisure. You'll have to go to work now. Estep. The doctor had died game. I took the envelope from the big man, put the death note in it, and put them in my pocket. Then I went to a front window, flattening a cheek against the glass until I could see O'Gar dimly outlined in the night, patiently standing where I had left him hours before. "'The city dick is still on the corner,' I told Ledwich. "'Here's your gat,' holding out the gun I had shot from his fingers a little while back." Take it, and blow through the back door. Remember, that's all I'm offering you, the gun and a fair start. If you play square with me, I'll not do anything to help find you, unless I have to keep myself in the clear. Fair enough. He grabbed the gun, broke it to see it was still loaded, and wheeled toward the rear of the flat. At the door he pulled up, hesitated, and faced me again. I kept him covered with my automatic. Will you do me one favor I didn't put in the bargain? he asked. What is it? That note of the docks is in an envelope with my handwriting and maybe my fingerprints on it. Let me put it in a fresh envelope, will you? I don't want to leave any broader trail behind than I have to. With my left hand, my right being busy with a gun, I fumbled for the envelope and tossed it to him. He took a plain envelope from the table, wiped it carefully with his handkerchief, put the note in it, "'taking care not to touch it with the balls of his fingers, "'and passed it back to me, and I put it in my pocket. "'I had a hard time to keep from grinning in his face. "'That fumbling with a handkerchief told me "'that the envelope in my pocket was empty, "'that the death note was in Ledwich's possession. "'Though I hadn't seen it pass there, "'he had worked one of his bunco tricks upon me. "'Beat it!' I snapped, to keep from laughing in his face. "'He spun on his heel. "'His feet pounded against the floor.' A door slammed in the rear. I tore into the envelope he had given me. I needed to be sure that he had double-crossed me. The envelope was empty. Our agreement was wiped out. I sprang to the front window, threw it wide open, and leaned out. Ogar saw me immediately, clearer than I could see him. I swung my arm in a wide gesture toward the rear of the house. Ogar set out for the alley on the run. I dashed back through Ludwig's flat to the kitchen and stuck my head out of an already open window. I could see Ledwich against the whitewashed fence, throwing the back gate open, plunging through it into the alley. Ogar's squat bulk appeared under a light at the end of the alley. Ledwich's revolver was in his hand. Ogar's wasn't, not quite. Ledwich's gun swung up. The hammer clicked. Ogar's gun coughed fire. Ledwich fell with a slow, revolving motion over against the white fence, gasped once or twice, and went down in a pile. I walked slowly down the stairs to join Ogar, slowly, because it isn't a nice thing to look at a man you've deliberately sent to his death, not even if it's the surest way of saving an innocent life, and if the man who dies is a Jake Ledwich, altogether treacherous. How come? Ogar asked when I came into the alley where he stood looking down at the dead man. He got out on me, I said simply. He must have. I stooped down and searched the dead man's pockets till I found the suicide note still crumpled in the handkerchief. O'Gar was examining the dead man's revolver. "'Look it!' he exclaimed. "'Maybe this ain't my lucky day. "'He stopped at me once in the gun fire. "'No wonder. "'Somebody must have been using an axe on it. "'The firing pins broke clean off.' "'Is that so?' I asked just as if I hadn't discovered when I first picked the revolver up that the bullet which had knocked it out of Ludwig's hand had made it harmless. End of Zigzags of Treachery, Part 2.